But some of the themes that are picked up in this passage that I'm going to read for us in a little bit uh, kind of resonate strongly with me because they're part of my story. They're kind of part of the story of how I came to faith. Uh, I came to faith when I was in about year eight in high school. Uh, my family, my parents aren't Christian, uh, and so I wasn't taken to church. I wasn't grown up in a Christian family. Um, it's a bit ironic. Uh, my brother is a Christian, uh, and he also uh, works for a church, and so my parents have two Christian sons who are both in vocational ministry. Uh, I think sometimes they're like, what, how do, what, what did we do? Uh, how does that work? Uh, anyway, uh, but I was in about year eight, and I had started going along to a youth group uh, in the local area, similar to what we're running uh, a couple of times a term on a Saturday here at Glen Osmond. Uh, and the youth group that I went to was in Sydney, where we were living. Uh, and I remember I'd only been there for like maybe a week or two, just started going along. And there was this big rally that was happening. It was kind of, I'm going to reveal my age here, but it was at the time that the Olympic site was being built in Sydney. So kind of they'd built one of the first kind of indoor kind of spaces that they were going to use for the Olympics. And a bunch of churches had been like, 10,000 seat auditorium. Let's see if we can gather a whole bunch of youth together for a massive youth event. And so it was like um, the same week I'd been along to this youth group. And they're like, hey, do you want to come along uh, on a Saturday night to this huge youth rally? And uh, being in year eight, you don't have a whole heap of other plans. Uh, and so I was like, sure, uh, let's go. Uh, and so I went along to this uh, massive youth rally uh, in Sydney at one of the Olympic sites. And I heard uh, from a speaker uh, about sin. I heard about how I had ignored and rejected God. But I heard about God's love and how because of his love, he sent his son Jesus to do something about my sin, about my rejection. I heard that about how Jesus died in my place. The sinless one taking the punishment that others deserved. And I heard about Jesus' resurrection, that in this he proved that he had dealt with my sin, and he proved that he is stronger than death and can offer me life. As a year eight kid who had struggled to find a place and good friendships, this all sounded pretty good. I basically had heard that I had stuffed up and I had done things wrong, that I was, despite this, that I was deeply and dearly loved, that somebody else had done all the work for me. All I had to do was believe. So on that night, I stood up in that crowd of other youth and I made the decision that, yeah, I believed this stuff, this sounded good, I was going to do just that. That was the first step in my journey. And that's why I think it's a first step. It was really almost a two-step thing. So I had this amazing experience where I heard the gospel presented truthfully and faithfully, and I was on board, and I was in. And then I started going along to my church regularly, and about six months later, uh, one of the, the pastors uh, was preaching. And the, the sermon that he was preaching challenged those listening that faith in Jesus isn't simply an intellectual decision. It's a decision that involves our whole life. Being a Christian means listening to God, 
communicating with him as our heavenly father and following what he calls us to do. Even when that's uncomfortable. Even when it's not something that we might want to do. Because the reality is that being one of Jesus' followers will involve doing things that aren't our way. We're laying down our way and our will to be able to actually listen to God, listen to his son Jesus, and to follow him, to do what he wants. Because it isn't about us. Being a Christian isn't about us being comfortable. It isn't about what's pleasant for us. Being a Christian is about following Jesus and living his way. And Jesus promised that's actually the best way for us to live. It might not always be pleasurable and enjoyable, but it is life to the full. It's life the way we were designed to live. And I responded to that on that night. The first night I responded intellectually and said, yes, that sounds good, I'm on board. But then I heard, no, no, this isn't just something to be on board on with intellectually. This is going to involve your life. This is going to involve decisions that aren't necessarily comfortable or easy. And at that moment, I took the second step and I was like, yes, I want to make my life about living God's way, living for Jesus, not it being about me. And the truth of that is the heart of the passage that we're going to be reading this morning. It comes from John chapter 8, and it's just after, in verse 30, Jesus has spoken to crowds of Jewish leaders and it says that as he spoke, many believed in him. They took that first step like I did at that big youth rally. They believed in what he was saying. However, Jesus is going to go on to challenge those who are listening, to those who believe in him, to take that extra step. The very next verse in John 8 verse 31 says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. It's great that you believe, but this is about belief and obedience. However, I'm conscious that we're jumping from where Nick was at last week when he spoke to us uh, from John chapter 4 with the woman at the well all the way to John chapter 8. So we've missed some key elements of the story. Uh, I'm going to try and quickly catch us up on like four chapters. Essentially, Jesus, from that point, travels around. He does a couple of healing miracles. I think I've got an image of one of those. This is the Pool of Bethsaida, uh, a very famous one in John chapter 5, only recorded in the book of John, another of the stories that you'll only find in John's gospel. Uh, a lot of people discredited the Bible because they never could find this specific pool. It talked about having a certain number of columns and they could never find it anywhere in Israel. This is in like the 70s and 80s, and it was upheld as one of the stories which proves that uh, the Bible isn't historically reliable until the 90s, when an excavation site in Israel discovered a pool with the exact number of columns uh, that John 5 talks about. Uh, so Jesus heals uh, a man there. Uh, and he does a few other signs of healing, which brings him into conflict with uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, particularly around the Sabbath, because uh, Jesus doesn't necessarily bound by the day of the week that he does his miracles and releases people from the things that have entrapped them. Uh, and that conflicts with the legalism 
of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Uh, the next story here in John chapter 6 is when Jesus feeds 5,000. It's an interesting story. The whole chapter is all about this feeding miracle. It's interspliced with uh, a story of Jesus walking on water as he kind of uh, follows the disciples and, and the crowds follow him. But he feeds 5,000 and essentially they turn and like, wow, this guy's amazing. He must be the Messiah. It's almost Passover. We're going to install him as the Messiah and we're going to kick the Romans out. Uh, and so Jesus, that's not really his plan. It's not really what he's about. And so he does some teaching uh, in the back half of John chapter 6, which is some of the most intense, difficult teaching of Jesus to understand. Actually invites people to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which they're like, what? Uh, and they don't get the imagery that he's kind of pointing to, which we will share in later, uh, and actually causes the crowds to leave. Actually says that at this the crowds left, and he turned to his disciples, and he's like, are you going to leave as well? And they're like, well, we don't really have anywhere else to go because you've got words of eternal life. And so they choose to stick with him in that moment. Chapter 7 and 8 uh, down the next slide, it's all kind of centered around the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates the Exodus story for the people as they live in the land. There's so much imagery, there's lights, there's fires that remind them of the pillar of fire during the night, there's water which reminds them of the water from the stone as they wandered through the desert in Exodus. There's all this rich imagery that comes up throughout this feast which lasts about a week. And at multiple times, Jesus pops up at the temple and actually picks up some of these images and symbols connected with the Feast of Tabernacles to actually help people understand who he is. At one point, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Very similar to what he was saying to the Samaritan woman that Nick preached on last week and connects with this feast where they're there and they're thinking about the water from a rock and how God provided for them. Another time he stands up as they're lighting uh, all the candles to remind themselves of the pillar of fire and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He does all these incredible things which the religious leaders aren't overly fond of. <laughs> they, they don't get the symbolism, they, they struggle. But he kind of keeps persevering, keeps going back into the temple, keeps picking up some of these images that are there as part of the festival, but also that are built into the temple to point towards who he is. Uh, and although the opposition from the Pharisees ramps up, they're still interested. They're still listening. They're still engaging. And actually gets to a point, like I said, in chapter 8, verse 30, that upon hearing him speak, it says that even as he spoke, many believed in him. And it's talking about the Pharisees. It's talking about the religious leaders. It is in this context that the following exchange happens between Jesus and the religious leaders that I'm going to read. This is uh, John chapter 8, verses 31 to 59. Thanks, Darren. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you are Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do as Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the work of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not, demon, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaim, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so do the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I love this passage, and I particularly love it because where it ends. Hidden in here, in this little bit that's still on the screen, 
is actually Jesus' most explicit statement that he and the Father are one, that he is actually the divine second member of the Trinity. Nowhere else in any of the Gospels comes anywhere near as clear as this sentence Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He takes the personal name of God as revealed by God in Exodus when God appears to Moses. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I get super excited about that verse, uh, but that's at the end, and so I'll, I'll try and rein it back in. Um, in these verses, we have a conversation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and there's a, there's a flow to the conversation, which can be hard for us to see easily, because uh, every time Jesus speaks, his words are overflowing with meaning, and each sentence could be the topic of a sermon in and of itself. They're so dense and there's so much amazing stuff which Jesus is saying, which these Pharisees are not getting their heads around. Uh, in an attempt to help us to kind of condense the format, hopefully to help us to be able to see um, the flow of the conversation, I've done something uh, which a lot of authors, a lot of books for kids are, are having happen to them at the moment to try and help uh, in, increase their readership and increase the amount of people that are interested in them. Uh, some of the m most popular kids' stories are being turned into graphic novels. So when I was young, I read a, a series called Animorphs, has now been made into some graphic novels. Uh, lots of books are doing that. So I am going to turn the conversation that we just heard from uh, John chapter 8 into a graphic novel for us, which hopefully will help us to be able to get a little bit of the flow of the conversation. I've used the pictures from uh, Micah's Action Bible, uh, but the words are all mine. Hopefully, this will help us uh, to get a bit of an idea of the flow of the conversation. So, uh, thanks, Darren. Uh, we have at the start, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, be my disciples and you will have true freedom. The Jews are like, freedom from what? We are free. See, it's interesting. They say they're free as they're living under Roman rule. So the Romans are an occupying force in Israel. And that, like, even if we take that out of the picture, there's almost no nation which is mentioned in the Bible that the Israelites aren't subjected to at some point. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, like it just goes on and on the list of nations which have subdued the Jewish people. And so they're actually not saying that they're physically, geopolitically free. They're talking about the fact that because they are Abraham's descendants, spiritually, they are privileged. They are free. They are the children of the promise. They are God's treasured nation, his holy possession. And so they're saying, no, no, you're saying that we can have freedom. We are the people who have the freedom of being Abraham's children. Jesus continues. This one's a bit long. Can you actually see that? Good. Uh, I'm struggling. Uh, he says, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. He puts it out there. If you sin, you are a slave. Whether you are Abraham's child or not, you're a slave to sin. And he goes on to make the point that if you're a slave, 
then you can be kicked out of the household. That's a common image for them. They know that there are slaves and they don't have the same sense of status and belonging within the house. If a slave's not performing their task, they get kicked out. But a son, a son will always belong. So if the son sets you free, you are free. His point is, you are Abraham's descendants, but you are slaves. And so your place in the father's house is precarious. Could be lost at any moment. What you need is the son who has a status which can't be taken from him to share status with you. And he's saying, I'm the son and I have the capacity to share that status with, it, with you. If I'm just telling you what I've seen in my father's house, clearly my father isn't your father. He starts getting at the fact that you're saying you're Abraham's children, you're saying you're God's people, but I've been in my father's house. And if you're not willing to accept me, are you? Is, is my father your father? Or is something happening here? Abraham is our father. They protest very strongly. Uh, thanks, Darren. Your actions prove you aren't Abraham's children. So Abraham, father of the nation, God appeared to him by his word and said, uh, I want you to leave the land you're living in and go and I will bless you. And what did Abraham do? He went. Abraham went. God said go and Abraham went. God, Abraham heard the word of God and obeyed. John chapter 1, that introduction that I spoke about, makes it very clear that Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word of God and these people are refusing to obey. Abraham received the word, obeyed. Jewish leaders have the word standing in their midst, speaking to them, and they refuse to obey. And so he's like, your actions prove that Abraham isn't your father. That doesn't, they don't love that. Yes, we are. The only father we have is God. Thanks, Darren. Jesus, can you say, God was your father, you would follow my instructions. You would do what I'm saying. But you don't because the devil is your father. I get the feeling that's going to go down real well with these people. Uh, and so uh, they do what anyone would do if somebody calls you a devil, is they go, nah, you're the devil. Thanks, Darren. Uh, I think that's what they say. They say, we don't even know where you're from. They kind of, they bring in Jesus' questionable origins. Aren't you a Samaritan? Where are you even from? You, like, you're saying we're illegitimate? Hello? Like, we know who your mum is, and we know Joseph wasn't married to her. Uh, you're saying we're illegitimate? Aren't you demon-possessed? Always good to just kind of like name call back in case anyone says something challenging to you. It's always a sign of maturity. Uh, thank you. Next one, Darren. Uh, so this conversation is progressing. You're kind of seeing the flow here. Uh, and Jesus let no, no, I, I honour God, but you dishonour me. If you obey me, you won't see death. So kind of gone from, I have freedom. We don't need freedom. Yeah, no, you're slaves. 
you need the son to give you his status. But we're children of Abraham. If you were, you would do what Abraham did and you would listen and obey. And they go, no, no, God is our father. It's like Jesus like, well, no, you're trying to kill me, which shows that you're not aligned with God. You're actually aligned with a murderer and a liar who is the devil. And they're like, no, no, you're the devil. No, I, I honour God and I've been with God. If you want life, if you want freedom, you need to obey me and you won't see death. Thanks, Darren. Now we know you are demon-possessed. You're saying if we obey your words, we will never die. Who do you think you are? Their whole faith has been based upon these, these patriarchs who are such solid people of faith, but they, they died. They've passed away. They haven't been able to live forever. Even the great King David passed away. Who does this guy think he is saying that if we trust in him, he can give us life forever? No one's been able to do that. None of our incredible fathers, Moses couldn't, Abraham couldn't, David couldn't. Who's this, who's this young guy, 30-odd years old, who's saying that if we follow him, we have life forever? Thanks, Darren. This is starting to get where Jesus is starting to bring it home and it's packed full of amazing stuff. I know who I am and God knows who I am. I know him a way you don't understand. He's starting to talk about his place before the Father. Abraham saw that I would come and he was glad. The prophets, Moses, they all look forward to the age when the Messiah would come and he would set up God's kingdom forever. King David saw it in the offspring who would establish his kingdom forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is kind of saying, these people have seen my time. It's me that you've been waiting for. And how do the Jewish leaders respond, Aaron? Not well. You're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham have seen you? They're very twitchy now. Uh, and then it just fuels the fire when Jesus says what he says. Thanks, Darren. Before Abraham was, I am. Immediately, they pick up stones to stone him. This person, this guy who is speaking with them in the temple forecourts, has just taken God's holy name upon himself. For the Jewish leaders, there is no greater blasphemy than actually taking God's name upon yourself. Like I said, when Moses saw the burning bush and the burning bush spoke to him and said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, Moses said, who am I supposed to say is sending me? And at that moment, out of the burning bush, God says, say to Pharaoh, I am who I am. It's where this, this Yahweh comes from. It's that kind of uh, translation of that. And here, Jesus takes that upon himself. He says, I am who I am. We miss it. The Jews did not. They immediately go to grab the stones because what this guy is now suggesting is too much for them. 
There's a theme that weaves its way throughout the whole conversation that I hope you were able to see as we did that little exercise. And it is the need for obedience to Jesus. Those who put their belief in him need to obey his commands. Those who want freedom from sin need to obey his commands. Those who want to be God's children need to obey his commands. Those who want eternal life need to obey his commands. The whole way through the conversation, this is about you need to obey my commands. Having faith in me is great, but it's, not, it's about faith and obedience. It's important to note, as many other places throughout the Bible do, this isn't saying that actions earn us salvation. I'm not saying here that our actions are the cause of how we earn salvation. No, no. Jesus earns our salvation when he died on the cross for us. Faith in his grace alone is what saves us. But our actions reveal our heart. They reveal our true belief. The book of James in the New Testament hits the nail on the head when it says, faith without deeds is dead. It's useless. It's nothing. Because if you truly have faith, if you truly believe this stuff, it impacts everything. You have to do something about it. You can't just intellectually tick a box. It requires our whole life. Just like I realized when I came to faith in year nine. In year eight, I heard stories of the gospel and an intellectual tick happened in my mind, but it wasn't until six months later where I realized this takes my whole life. This isn't just something I can turn up to on a Friday night and a Sunday and I can tick a box and say I've done the Christian thing. This is something that is a Monday to Sunday thing. Every hour, every moment of my life is about my faith. Because it's easy to sit back at this story and almost poke our fingers at the Pharisees and say, how terrible are they? How could they get it so wrong? But I think it's important that we consider our own lives. We consider how we act the same way as the Pharisees did. An intellectual understanding of Christianity is good, but alone it's not enough. Being part of a family that is of faith is good. I wish that I had that growing up, and it's what we're trying to create for our children now, a family of faith. But alone, it isn't enough. I'm aware that there will come a time, and it definitely seems to have already happened for perhaps both my children, that they have had to make a decision for themselves. And they will continue to need to make that call of where do they put their faith and who do they listen to, and who do they follow? Coming to church, being on the roster to help out kids' ministry, very good, please keep going. Uh, but alone, it is not enough. Friends, being a Christian involves us being in Jesus and demonstrating that belief in our whole lives. Sunday Christians don't exist. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is no truth at all. That was the problem for the Pharisees. They had this half-truth that they were God's chosen people. He was special possession. And that was true, right? 
but it's not the whole truth. It needs their actions. It needs their lives. But they were holding on to this half of the truth as if it was the whole truth. And it ended up being no truth at all. Friends, if, if we are wanting to be one of Jesus' followers, if we want to call ourselves a Christian, it involves our whole lives. We can't just turn up on a Sunday and appear to have things together and have the Sunday miracle of the church car park where as you drive you're arguing and then you turn up at church and all of a sudden everyone puts a smile on their face and comes in and everything's perfect. That's just not real and it's not what Jesus is calling us to. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is no truth at all. Jesus calls us for obedience with our whole life, our whole being. He wants more than just an intellectual agreeing with the gospel. He wants more than just being part of a service for 90 minutes once a week. He wants a life that seeks to listen to him, to know him, to follow him and obey him. Jesus said, if you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he is the source of our salvation. Thank you that as we seek to believe in him, we have freedom. We have membership into your family as your children, as he shares his status with us. And we have life forever with you. God, help us to make our whole life about honouring you and following you. Help us to seek to listen to you, to hear your commands and to live them out, knowing that is what is best for us. Amen.